Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's so great to see you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Congratulations. Happy anniversary. <laughs> this is a very big day, a very big occasion. Oh, <laughs> so good to see you all. Happy anniversary. So how many of you, uh, we, we began here in the Heights 20 years and five days ago, and uh, but some of you were sitting at the First Unitarian Church for like 10 years before that, but how many of you started at the um, Unitarian Church? Everybody raise your hands. Look around. Raise your hands high. And how many of you have... Practice of you who've got your hands raised have practiced continuously without fail. <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you so much. And then, um, well, I was going to do a whole bunch of things like that, but that's enough. <laughs> I don't want to tear you out. So we started at the Unitarian Church and then. Um, oh, yeah, somebody went to Green Gulch because we were sitting at the, they, I should say you, we, all of us were sitting at the Unitarian Church, and then somebody decided to go to Green Gulch and invite, find a teacher, invite somebody to come, and the abbot was um, Tension Rev. Anderson Roshi. Somebody went and invited him. Who was that? <laughs> Raise her hand for her. <laughs> Everybody say thank you, Kathy. And he said, yes. Yes, he said, I've been thinking about Houston. Yes, he did say that. And I was speaking to him the other day and told him that we were having this party, and he said, I really wanted it to, to stick in Houston. So we did it. We've done it. And uh, I'll tell you another story about him in a little bit, but, um, oh yeah. And then he uh, invited a few of his senior people to come and he said, does anybody want to go to Houston? I can't go. And it's like my hand went up. <laughs> Thank you, Buddha. <laughs> and so I started coming just for visiting and then, um, uh, people here were and are amazing, and then some of them started inviting me to move here, correct? How many of you did that? <laughs> <laughs> the rest of you said no. <laughs> and then somehow or other, I did, and I moved here. We raised money to buy a building because that was one of the conditions that I said, you know, in order to really do Zen practice in my Understanding there are lots of ways to do Zen practice, but the way to really make it stick is to have a place to go to. And so that was one of the conditions. And okay, let's have a place to go to and on the premises, because I would come here and visit and go running around the neighborhood. And I saw, wow, there's this phenomenon in Houston of garage apartments. That, that's kind of unusual in the world, I have to tell you, but. Um, I saw those and I thought, we could get a place like that with a garage apartment and that would be a place where somebody like me who'd been living in a monastery for a long time could live. 
And so we started raising money and um, looking. And then how many people here contributed to that first effort? We were sitting around in Louise's living room, and Louise is a formative in influence on our case because Louise, who was the president then, is very warm. So partly, largely, the conditions of the, the shape and the style of our Zen Center are profoundly influenced by Louise's personality, which is so warm and loving, and she, she's from Louisiana. So a lot of the, the feeling of our Zen Center is from Louise. So we were sitting around her living room, and we were close to having enough to get our first building. And um, Dave Johnson, um, resting in eternal um, troublemaking, <laughs> said, okay, we're this close. If everybody in the room... We're 21 people sitting in the room. If everybody in the room can give this much, the, the amount we need to divide it by 21, we can do it. And everybody raised their hand. So, isn't that amazing? Yeah. So we got our place, and we moved in, and I moved here on September 6, 2003, and we opened our doors for morning meditation on September 7, 2003. <laughs> So part of the interesting, I want to say a couple of things about the principle of what, of uh, Buddhist practice and Zen and some of the things behind why something like this really works. It's not just because of wanting it to work, it's because our bodies are here making it work. And when uh, Shakyamuni Buddha started wandering around in northern India and finding people and answering their questions and teaching, he was a very disruptive influence. So part of the um, nature of Buddhist practice and of Zen is that it disrupts things. So this morning during our service, we chanted the harmony of difference and equality. It sounds really nice because it starts with harmony and equality, but actually that's a very disruptive teaching that there is this harmony and yet there's difference. There's harmony, equality, sameness, and difference. One of the translations is the harmony of difference and sameness. And the Buddha, when he was wandering around, one of the things that Buddhist, Buddha and his followers um, rejected was the caste system, which was very strong at that time. They rejected it. Everybody can be in our group. These castes are meaningless gender, meaningless, everybody has the same nature. That's the big insight of the Buddha. We all have the same nature. And then the teachings that he wandered around teaching for 45 years are that there are these two truths in Buddhism. One truth is the ultimate truth. We're all the same light. We all have the same nature. We all have the same potential. We're all awake and it's obscured from most of us. And that's the truth of the ultimate reality. And then there's the second truth, which is conventional reality, which is a truth. You look around and you see others. Uh, you see difference, you see objects. That's also a truth. And conventional reality is kind of a nice word because 
it's like a convention. We get together and in our convention, we describe what reality is. And sometimes we agree with that and sometimes we don't, but we're all profoundly shaped by the conventional reality we find ourselves living out and being a, a representative of. So the Buddha taught that, but he also taught you have to adapt to circumstances. So even in the Buddha's lifetime, interestingly, um, sincere followers tried to say, but Buddha, you know, in this group, you taught it this way. So in this group, I notice when they pass it on, they're using different language and they're using different words and they're not pronouncing the teachings correctly. Isn't that cute? <laughs> Buddha's, people would say, Buddha, they're not pronouncing, what do you want to say? Jinana um, prasana, they're not pronouncing the wisdom uh, factor correctly. And Buddha said, that's okay, that's okay. You let them pronounce it the way they want to pronounce it. You let them use the words they want to use. That's what we're going to do. Isn't that nice? So we carry that down all the way. We have that nugget, that kernel of Buddha's teaching. And then um, I've been really interested in Bodhidharma recently. Dave Smith is very interested in Bodhidharma. How many people really like Bodhidharma? Look at this, fan club Bodhidharma. <laughs> Very important. There's a statue of him. Yes, thank you. It's right there. And there's another statue of him uh, next to the Han, which calls people to the Zendo. So from Yazan. Look at that statue. Bodhidharma generally, see these um, representations, compassion, uh, meditative stability and the ability to stand still in a hell realm. That's what those three representations are. Look how peaceful they are. And the one on the left, Jizo, is standing in hell. And Kuan Yin on the right is standing surrounded by the flames of the world. And really, that means she's surrounded in three dimensions by flames, but it's more aesthetic to have them just behind her. But she's looking out, looking for people calling for help listening. And the Buddha is sitting in the midst of reality in meditative stability. But Bodhidharma here and in that statue is like, because ah. <laughs> he has a different kind of energy. And one of the important things about Bodhidharma, especially for our celebration, is that he took the responsibility, his teacher told him to do it, he took the risk. I'm not comparing myself to Bodhidharma, by the way, <laughs> but um, it's just the feeling of him. He um, left India and went by boat to China, and he landed in southern China, Guangzhou, and the he's he, he was important enough, and the emperor was very enthusiastic about Buddhism. So the emperor invited Bodhidharma to come and answer some questions. So Bodhidharma shows up and the emperor asks him, um, what is the highest meaning of the holy truths? It's like, I've been a follower of Buddhism for a long time and um, the emperor, and uh, tell me the secret, what's the highest meaning? And Bodhidharma said, emptiness, no holy. And then um, the emperor thought about this 
and said, um, I've built all these temples, I've supported all these monasteries, I've spread Buddhism throughout China, and uh, what's the merit? What have I gained because of this? And Bodhidharma said, no merit. And then Bodhidharma stayed there for a while, and then finally he went north and sat in a cave for nine years facing the wall. So that's, that's our, our legacy. But the real legacy, of course, we are wall gazers like Bodhidharma, but the real legacy is that incredible, um, powerful statement that it's empty. So if he were to bring all of Buddhism as it was practiced in India at that time and then plant it in China, it would have a, you know, be hard to get through the door. So you would find blockades. How I can't go in because I don't understand what's happening. So what he brought was emptiness. He brought ultimate reality, conventional reality, but an empty expression of that. Then he sat in a cave, and then something could grow from that. Isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. So part of the, um, and he was very disruptive, of course, because he, uh, from one way of looking at it, the emperor of China then and now, people in China are pretty darn powerful, but the um, emperor of China then could have just had him put to death. Just like, what? That's a little rude. <laughs> Thank you know. But um, no. And so Bodhidharma lived to bring the teaching of emptiness into China. And then it flourished. And eventually, um, Dogen Zenji went to China, and then it came back, this teaching of emptiness, this practice of Zen, practice of the two truths, practice of adapting to conditions, came to Japan and then to the West. So Bodhidharma, two of his really profound teachings are about, well, one of his profound teachings is the two entrances. There are two entrances to uh, ultimate practice, the left front door and the right front door. He closed off this one. (laughs) Two entrances. One is entry by principle and one is entry by practice. So in that um, teaching, entry by principle is kind of what we're doing now. We hear teachings. We have to enter through principle. We enter through lots of the teachings and the classes, but the entry by practice is facing a wall. But it's also all the practices. And one of the major expressions of the practice, the nature of entry by practice is skillful means, upaya, adapt to conditions. So that's the real um, secret of what's being done in Houston is that uh, all of us who've been here and all of you um, have a willingness to uh, adapt to the conditions, meet the need of the actual people who come through the door and hold on to this teaching of emptiness, refresh and then adapt, refresh, adapt. I told the story of Louise, who is having some major health problems, so we're all praying for Louise. Um, And then another 
significant story. There's so many millions of stories over the years of great things that people have done. But this one is kind of significant in terms of how we practice. Um, when we first opened our doors, three blocks down, and that it's now a law office. And when we decided we needed to move up here and expand, um, these lawyers came who wanted to buy it. This isn't a significant story. This is a random thought that just entered my head. <laughs> so, um, these, we put it on the market for the top price of that time. And we thought we won't have to move right away because we're asking such a lot of money for this little bungalow. And these lawyers came and they said, would you allow us to buy your building? We'll take really good care of it. Isn't that sweet? So I said, okay. <laughs> so we were very, very, it was a very good meeting with us and, and that group of people. Um, but while we were down there, it was kind of small, and the only way to get in was through this front door. And then you opened, you know, a narrow traditional bungalow. You opened the door. It was a tiny bit of um, kind of a foyer thing, but not really much of a buffer. And so people would just walk in the front door. And um, one of our members came from the Woodlands, Bruce, Bruce McGill's. And he's not here because he's in heaven. Passed away a few years ago. Um, Bruce would drive from the woodlands for morning zazen and then go to work. And I was kind of strict at that time. It's like, no, zazen starts, we were starting at 5 and 5.50 and 6.30. We had three periods in the morning. <laughs> and he would drive down and he got there. I found out he got there late for the 5 o'clock sitting because in zen, one way to practice Zen is to help us go against our tendency to be late if we have that tendency, which I do. But um, so be on time, be five minutes early. So that's a nice practice point. But Bruce had driven all the way down and he was five minutes late and he went home to the woodlands because he thought it would be rude to walk in. And I realized we have to stop that practice. <laughs> so now we have a way you can come in late. It's really okay. Adapting to circumstances. And then we were very um, careful about these forms. Zen has so many forms, you know. Turn to the right when you leave your cushion. Don't push around zabatons with your toes. Use your hands. This may be news to some of you. So this <laughs> gentle um, and we were just kind of walking into the room and uh, Bruce came up to me and said isn't there a way you're supposed to walk in don't you bow when you walk in and so we the practice committee said well yes there is a way <laughs> let's institute that and so because of Bruce we started we did more of the practice more of the forms because it feels good so all these forms that we're doing have come from our historical connections and our, our um, traditions, but they are adapted. And most are at the request of people who've come. So isn't there a way that we do this? Well, yes, we'll do that. And then the way we, we transmit that understanding is very gently. It's not like, not too often anyway. <laughs> it's not. It's meant to be something that is a practice. It's entry by practice. 
It's entry. It's not a bar. It's a way in. So that's part of what we're doing. And then, um, something else about Bruce. Let me come back. But we, part of the reason of having, the main reason for having a place is because it connects you to the practice. You're invited to be part of it. And each one of us has now put some physical, some of our life energy in. We've done, we've cared for things, we've either swept it or taught classes. Our life energy is in here. So this place is made of the accumulation of your life energy. Isn't that amazing? That's why it feels alive, because it is alive. It's a living organism. And then we take care of it in the way we take care of it. We take care of it thoroughly. And then when you go someplace else, as I hope all of you do, visit many Zen centers like I do, you see they take care of different things. And therefore, we're taking care of the entirety of Zen practice or Buddhist practice because we're all taking care of different parts of it. And so when you go to Japan or China, they're taking care, meticulous care of some of the ritual parts of it that we don't have to take care of because we know they're taking care of these deep, meaningful rituals. And we adapt and adopt the ones we want, but we know somebody else is taking care. And we're taking care of a temple in the middle of a big city. We're taking care of something. And people know, wow, over there in Houston, they're taking care of that. What are they learning? What can they share with us? This is true. Two weeks ago, I was in Peru to celebrate the 120th anniversary of the first Zen temple in South America. Isn't that amazing? So 120 years ago, um, about 125 years ago, Japanese people had gone from Japan, let's see, which were you guys facing? Here's Japan, here's South America, somewhere like this, and in a boat to Lima. First bunch of immigrants. And then a few years later, they opened their first Soto Zen temple. Isn't that amazing? So I went there to help celebrate and it was beautiful. And as you can probably imagine, the feeling of the temple was a way big bunch more colorful than ours. <laughs> there, there was color and there was sound. It was beautiful. And um, oh yeah, on the way to the to Peru, a bunch of dignitaries from Japan um, had a layover in Houston. Intentionally, they, lay, they had a long layover so they could come here because this place is really important to Japanese Soto Zen. And so a bunch of big dignitaries were here and they bowed on these mats and offered incense to our altar and they looked around and they wanted to go out to our land because that's also incredibly impressive to them, but we didn't have time. But I just want you to know, and part of the reason I travel and that I'm the director of the International Center is because of the high standing of this temple. Because they want such a, a representative who understands or is part of what's helping Zen thrive in the United States. And then I get to go there. Isn't that amazing? It's because of what we're doing that uh, we're so connected to Japan. Mm. 
Is that, did I, did I make that clear? Okay. And so I know when I go places, um, it's Houston Zen Center that they're inviting. And so I'm on good behavior for the most part. <laughs> and while I was there, so here's my final story I want to tell you, because I just learned it in Peru when I was there. The um, So all the bishops of, we call it SOCON, and the best word is bishop. So there's a bishop of North America, a bishop of Europe, bishop of South America, and a bishop of Hawaii. Because it's very, Zen is very strong in Hawaii, and it was established long before was established here. So those people went and then a bunch of dignitaries. So um, some of them came here, but the Bishop of Europe didn't come here. He just went straight to South America. His name is Shoten Menegishi. And he's a, an amazing person. He's about 10 years older, older than I am and very cool, very settled man. But he and I are, friends because his English is pretty good and my Japanese is very bad so <laughs> we, we always are together and this time he we were walking to visit a pyramid in the middle of Lima and he said your teacher is Tenshin Roshi isn't he and I said why well, yes he is and he said long time ago he gave me a teaching that is so important, was so important in my life. And he probably doesn't, he said, attention, Roshi, he probably doesn't remember it, but it was so important for me. And I said, what? <laughs> and I bet he remembers you because attention, Roshi has an amazing memory. And I bet he remembers you, I'm sure he does. What's the story? And a long time ago, um, Minigishi had come to America. To, a lot of you know the name Katagiri Roshi, a very, very important teacher. These great Japanese teachers who came from their temples to the United States and then did their, made their best effort and then died in the United States. So, warm place. He was great, Katagiri Roshi. Katagiri Roshi invited um, this other great teacher, I'm sorry for all these names, but this great teacher named Narasaki Roshi um, came and um, Minigishi was his jisha. And then this other jisha came, who's now the head of the training monastery in Japan. Um, these four people came to the States and they went to San Francisco Zen Center. And as when Kathy visited then uh, later, Tenshin Roshi was the abbot. So, um, Minigishi translated for everybody, and he, he he interviewed Reb for two hours, all these questions about what's happening in Zen. And then he, he said they didn't get enough from Tenshin Roshi, so I had all these questions, and I apologized. I gave him this list of questions, and I'm so sorry. These are just small things, just details. And Tenshin Roshi said, it's the details that are important. And he said, Minigishi said, I finally understood what my father had been teaching me. <laughs> that the details are important. That how you leave your shoes in the entryway, thinking about the people coming after you, how you, how you work together in a room, thinking about the people who are around you. He said, I finally understood what my teacher, what my father was telling me. And I said, that's really 
great. So I bet your father was really happy to hear that. And he said, my father had passed away six months before. But because of Tenshin Roshi, he understood. Mm -hmm. So I got back to my room in the hotel, and I typed that out. <laughs> <laughs> and sent it to Tenshin Roshi. And he was so happy because, of course, he remembered it perfectly. And in fact, he had just been going through some things, and he had a photo of the whole group. So he took a he took a photo of that photo, sent it to me, and the next day I showed it to Minamichi. And it was so happy. I was so great to make this connection over all these decades, 40 years. Wow. And so that's part of what our practice is. We're in the middle always of these relationships that just keep going on and changing and staying alive. Okay? Thank you all so much.